Let's pray. Lord God, we, your people, this day are thankful for how you worked these millennia ago. And we pray through your Holy Spirit that you would instruct us through this word, teaching us that which we are to believe and that which we are to do as a result of encountering it today. And we likewise ask, as we study it now, help us to see Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. We often acknowledge, I often acknowledge for us, and it's appropriate that we do so, that we live in a broken world. And in the midst of living in a broken world, many of us, could somebody just check on the dog outside the door and see if we could, see if we just move the dog along? Thank you, Dave. Brad, Dave's got it. <laughs> Sorry about that. Many of us, especially when we are young, had or we have an impulse to fix the brokenness of this world. We, we, we want to make it better. We want to leave it a better place than we found it. We want to improve the lot of the world. And that's true sometimes whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. As people made in the image of God, we have inside of us a sense of what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, what is beautiful and what is ugly. And so many people would like to do something about the ugliness that we see around us. Now, when you become a Christian, that is, if you will, redoubled. You even more so want to see this world fixed. You want to see it to be better than it is. And so we do, as people, all sorts of things to try to improve the lot of the world. Maybe it's something as simple as picking up a little bit of trash that we see laying around or trying to do some recycling, doing something that we can do to help the environment. Or maybe rather we see impoverished people all around us and we want to do something to help those who are living in poverty. And so we perhaps bring food on a particular Sunday, we try and distribute it down uh, at the well here and they're distributing it out into the community. There are things that we would like to do to help people. Sometimes we see a need for people who are impoverished and don't have health care. We want to say, how can we help? How can we provide in this world an opportunity for all people to have health care? These days in my household, one of the problems that we see in this world is the incredible high cost of tuition. And we think, what can we do about that? Something is wrong here, and we've got to do something about that. We try to resolve international disputes. We try, perhaps in our own workplaces, to stop trafficking. We stop uh, harassment that goes on in the workplaces. Or sometimes, consider this, maybe we just see some people who are uh, some friends of ours who are having a dispute, some friends who are unresolved in a conflict, maybe a married couple, maybe just some friends, and we'd like to help out. We'd like to step into the situation and try to restore those who are feuding. There are all kinds of, and these are just some of, noble efforts to make things better. And yet these noble efforts that we have often have with them unintended consequences. They often end up making the situation for all of our best intentions worse than if we had simply left it alone. 
And when you get in a situation like that, when you've tried to help out and you see that you've actually made the situation worse, you want to cry out and say, Lord, how is this possible? All I wanted to do was help. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to bring a little bit of peace, a little bit of beauty where I saw ugliness or where I saw discord. While Moses, or Moses and Aaron, come before Pharaoh in our text today, and as they come before Pharaoh, they're on something of a roll, we might say. Uh, They come with the imprimatur of God. God has said, you are set up for this task. Moses comes in particular having just survived an attempt on his life by Yahweh, so he comes now with a clean conscience in the power of God's word and God's covenant, and they just got to the people of Israel, of whom, remember, Moses was very afraid of the reaction that they would have, and it turns out that they really responded well to the words that Aaron and the signs that Aaron did, and Moses was there with him on behalf of the people. It went well. They actually believed. The elders believed, the people believed, and the conclusion that we had at the end of chapter 4 was everybody worshiping. And that was great. It was a beautiful picture. And so they're on something of a hot streak now as they come before Pharaoh. The wind is in their sails, and they come before Pharaoh. And here's what Moses says with prophetic bluntness and with high hopes. We hear the phrase that you, you and I know this phrase a lot because we've got all of the scriptures. We know that this is prophetic language. You've got to remember that this is early on in the history of prophets, and so language like this is not as prevalent at this time. But we hear Moses stand before Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord, let my people go. And I don't know about you, but I I can't hear Let My People Go without hearing uh, the spiritual. I can't hear it without Satchmo, without Louis Armstrong uh, singing it in my ear. But nevertheless, that's the command, and he's very bold as he takes it to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, as we read the text, takes about two seconds to say, all right, let, let me think about that. No. Here's my response to that very strong declaration that you've made with prophetic bluntness, no. In fact, I I have another idea. I'm going to make life a little bit tougher, a little bit tougher on you and a little bit tougher on everybody else. Now, I'm not going to take time to work through all of the things that Pharaoh does in this passage. I think that simply by reading this, you can get a sense of what he does to make the work harder, if not impossible, for the Israelites. And so we see it very clearly laid out for us in the text. But the idea that we have, and, and when we're watching this, what we can see is that Pharaoh is no political novice. You don't get to be Pharaoh. You don't, you don't get to rule an entire nation and an empire by not knowing how to deal with those who would come up to you with various requests. You don't get to be Pharaoh without learning very quickly how to say no and how to say, not your will be done, but mine will be done in this kingdom. Thank you very much. And so Pharaoh is presented here to us in this chapter, in this situation, as immovable. He's indomitable. He is impervious to any attempted persuasion, whether that be a a divine declaration of thus saith the Lord, or whether it be, as it appears to be in this text, a modified, uh, please, please, 
I forgot to say please the first time. Let me say please the second time. Let these people go out to worship. As one writer puts it, Aaron and Moses are quickly outclassed and overwhelmed. They come in with high hopes and they are quickly outmaneuvered and find themselves on the outside looking in. They go, literally, in the span of one chapter from being heroes. The end of chapter 4 looks pretty good, right? They come to the people. They receive uh, the words that they're going to say. These guys are the redeemers. They're going to take us out of slavery and oppression here in Egypt. And everybody worships and everybody is happy to the end of chapter 5, and they are goats. And you want to point that out on a day like today because this reminds us, of course, of Palm Sunday, of another Redeemer who came into a city, and as he comes into the city, everybody's excited because the King is here. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Deliverer is amongst us. He's going to take us out of all of this bad stuff that's been going on. He's going to get rid of the Romans. He's going to reestablish the kingdom. Everything is going to be good. And when he goes before the rulers and things don't turn out exactly that way, the exact same thing happens. The people turn. The people turn. They say, get rid of him. Crucify him. So you want to see the parallels between them. And so Pharaoh, as they say, took round one, and he took it in a big way. There was no contest in round one between Pharaoh and Moses. And you want to go, why? Why did this happen? Now, now whether or not Moses should have anticipated this, given what God said earlier, we could debate that. It, it seems pretty clear he should have anticipated this resistance, but for whatever reason, it takes him and Aaron off guard. But you want to ask, why does it have to take place in this way? Why do the wicked prosper? Why does Pharaoh get to prosper over the people of God for any time longer? And why, when I go to help in some particular situation, does it sometimes, oftentimes, turn out catastrophically wrong? What's God up to in this passage? Why does it have to be so hard to get this people out of Egypt? Why didn't God, who obviously, and this will be the point obvious in, 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 in the whole book of Exodus, obviously God has Pharaoh's heart right in his hand. Why not do the deliverance right now? Pharaoh says, okay. Well, I think what we can do is, is take some lessons from a passage like this. And frankly, I think this is exactly what is happening in this passage. And it barely needs any translation into the modern world at all. We're all going to get this, and we're going to see these things right away in terms of asking the question of what God is doing. Here's what he's doing. First of all, God is revealing the heart. The passage begins for us today in the first place by revealing Pharaoh's hard and hardening heart. I said this last week, and I'm still going to ask you to be patient. We're going to look at this question of Pharaoh's hardening heart. The beginning of chapter 7 is a great place to park on this question, and we will wrestle with how this hardening takes place and who's responsible for what. warn you, we won't be able to plumb the depths of it, but nevertheless, we'll wrestle with it at the beginning of chapter 7. So allow me to hold off a little bit right now and simply to say this. This chapter for us clearly exposes us to the ugliness of Pharaoh's heart. 
his willingness to oppress, to enslave the people who are around him. And we'll look at it as the weeks come along. He can flippantly say, I don't know this Lord. I don't know this Yahweh. Now, in the background, you, you want to hear a voice that says, right, you will. You will. Not yet, but you are going to know him. And then, but we'll hold that off for now. But it also reveals to us not only Pharaoh's ugly heart, but it reveals to us the heart of the people as well. In a, in a proto-way, and we'll get more of this in Exodus as we move along, but at least in a representational way, we see the heart of the people reflected in the response of the foremans. So the foremans recognize we're in an impossible situation. They request audience with Pharaoh. They get audience with Pharaoh. Almost Pharaoh's just saying, I got to hear this. I, I want to hear what they're going to say. They get audience with Pharaoh. They lay out the grievances. They lay out the situation. And Pharaoh says, you are lazy. You are lazy. And so they come out of that meeting with Pharaoh and if you're following the Lord and you've just had that meeting with Pharaoh and you come to Moses and Aaron, what should you do? You should come out with supplication. You should come out and say to Moses and Aaron, this is what's happening and it's awful. Let's gather up the people and let's pray. That's what they should have done. But the heart does something perhaps even more predictable than a call to prayer, certainly more a custom for us than a time of prayer. They come out and they take their fingers and they stick it right in the chest of Moses and of Aaron and they say, this is your fault. God judge between us. It's not our fault. We may be the foremans, but you guys are responsible for what is taking place right now. The blood is on your hands. You've put a sword right into Pharaoh's hands, and the sword is going to be used against us, against your people. Moses, 40 years ago, got the same treatment. He tried to help Israelites 40 years before, and they said the same thing to him. Who died and made you king over us? Who says we have to listen to what you are saying? But not only does it reveal Pharaoh's heart, not only does it reveal the heart of the people, but it reveals Moses' heart as well. Moses turns and he points at God. When you have someone sticking a finger in your chest and saying, this is your fault, your first impulse is not going to be, yes, you're right. Your first impulse is going to be, look for somebody else standing behind you that you can point the finger at. And that's exactly what Moses does. He turns and he points at God and says, I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. In, in effect, modern language, what he says is, I told you so. This is what I was saying. You thought I was just making personal objections in chapter 4? No, this is what I was saying. This kind of stuff was going to happen. It's your fault. You said you were going to deliver this people, and you didn't. And the end of chapter 5 ends with that, that stunning line, you have not delivered your people at all. You said this is what you were going to do, and you haven't done it. Moses is, of course, blame-shifting. 
He perhaps is not full of self-righteousness, but he is certainly full of self-rightness and self-pity because he's getting blamed for everything, and he's complaining and he's grumbling before the Lord. Let me suggest to you that he looks anything but faithful right now. I mean, this doesn't look like faith. Maybe it looks like the struggle of faith, but it certainly doesn't look like a man who is full of faith. And so what we see very simply with the heart, it's not just Pharaoh who has ugliness in his heart. And that's what this passage is is saying to us. Look what happens when this gets heaped on. The ugliness is in Pharaoh's heart. The ugliness is in the people's heart, or at least it's in the foreman's heart. And finally, the ugliness is in Moses' heart as well. And the simple message to all is this, the ugliness is in everybody's hearts. It's in everyone's heart. And therefore, no one deserves deliverance. That's what God is saying. I'm going to even out the playing field right now. I want something to be perfectly clear to everybody who's reading this. Nobody deserves what I'm going to do. Secondly, God is revealing helplessness. This chapter in its structure and in the events that take place here is specifically designed to show that on human terms, no escape is possible. Resistance is futile. It's not going to happen. So it's like watching a movie where you know that this is not going to turn out well. You watch Spartacus, the old Spartacus, and you're full of hope. You, you think, you, you'd like to think that it's going to turn out well, and you know there's no way that it will. And that's what's going on in this passage. It is designed to show us that. And, and, and the problem in chapter 5 that we've just read is not only Pharaoh. Pharaoh is bad enough. But there's another problem that is here as well. There is another force that is holding the people in bondage. And that force, I think we can appropriately label using our language of today, and and, and actually the Bible uses similar language in other places. They're being held in bondage, and they're being held down and oppressed, not merely by Pharaoh, but by the system. The system has them in its grip, and it is pervasive. Pharaoh, no Pharaoh, no individual, can hold an entire people into bondage by themselves. Doesn't work that way. You have to have a system. You have to have your henchmen. You have to have a culture and a group around you that begins to accept that way of dominance. You have to have laws that work. The way, the very way that things work serve to hold this people in check and in place. Systems of oppression are real. They're not pretend. They really exist in the world and they leave us feeling helpless before them. It is one thing to feel helpless before an individual person and to think if we only got rid of that person, that boss, that president, that dictator, it would be okay. We would be able to make this situation okay by getting rid of the head, cut off the head and everything else would be okay. 
but it's not the case. Because there are all kinds of systems that are interwoven into the fabric of a society that allow that head to exist in its place. And so usually what happens is you cut off the head and the monster grows a new one. And that's the way it works when you try to help somebody. You, you, you see somebody, and maybe, maybe the issue that you're looking at that you can see is, is this person is in poverty, and I'd love to do something to help them out of this poverty. I'd love to give them some money to help them out of this impoverished situation in which they find themselves, and then you realize quickly that poverty is connected with a whole bunch of other things. It's connected with education and educational opportunity and educational opportunities connect with a whole host of other things. When you don't get educated, you don't make good, for example, food choices, lifestyle choices. And when you don't make good food or lifestyle choices, you end up with a terrible problem of health. And that connects with a whole series of other things related to employment options and drug use and despair and alcoholism. And they're all intertwined together. So you would like to just help with this one particular thing. You kind of step into it with a little bit of naivete to think perhaps I can be of assistance here, and then you realize this thing is much more complex than I realized when I started off. You get in there, and there are 10 other things that are connected to this, and you feel helpless before the system. Now, let me just say quickly, and I, I, this, is, this is a preview of things to come, so I'm not going to get into it a lot right now. God has a plan for this. God has a plan to cut off the head and establish himself as king. But it doesn't stop there. God has a whole new system to put in place. It's called the law of God. And the whole second half of Exodus is going to reveal that to us. God has a new way of establishing community. And that will be revealed. And Jesus will do the same thing. Jesus will come in as the king, and his way will even be a better way, the new covenant, better than the old covenant, which will be revealed in Exodus, the old covenant. Jesus is going to come in and say, this is the law of love, and this is how I want you to live it out. A new king, and a new community, and a new way of being that community. But that's a preview. For now, what we need to feel is the helplessness that you have in a situation like this, and a passage like this. Finally, then, God revealing for us in a situation like this the heart and the helplessness, the last thing that is revealed when you get into this situation is God himself. Now, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter division inserted later. Now you shall see what I will do. God has set this up. He has set up the situation, and he says to Moses, okay, appreciate it, 80-year-old, you got to stand aside. You got to let me now take center stage. Pharaoh says he doesn't know me. He will. In fact, Moses, that strong arm of Pharaoh's, that strong arm which is now holding you and all of the people in oppression and in slavery, it's going to be that arm that's going to be pushing you out. Same arm. You're not going to believe it, 
but I'm going to use exactly that arm to get you on the way. Watch and see what I will do. Despair and desperation, which is where the people are left in this story, are the essential components in the creation of fertile soil for God's self-revelation and redemption. Fertile soil for God revealing himself and his plan of redemption cannot be created without despair and desperation. Sorry. That doesn't sound good to any of us when we hear it. But there's no other way. There is no other way in a broken world. We have to come face to face by one means or another with the vanity of all of our efforts, with the futility of the things that we try to do, with the fact that all things are subject to death and to decay, even the best of whatever it is that we have created before I can be ready for Easter. I must feel the full weight and despair of Lent, if you want to put it in terms of the church calendar, or of death. Easter doesn't make any sense without that despair and that desperation. I must look at this world with its evil people, with its oppressive systems, and I have to look at it and I must say that the problem is all around me. The problem is not only all around me, but Moses himself becomes part of the problem, and so the problem is in me, and we have to finally get to the point where I say, you know what? The problem is me. I am the problem, and I can't fix it, and you can't fix it, and we together can't fix it, not even if we had. I mean, Christians in the States imagine sometimes, what if we had all the money and all the power and all the resources? What if we held all of the offices in the school boards and on the community boards and on the state level and on the national level. What if we had all of that? Could we fix it? I, I, I listened to an interview yesterday. Um, and I was jogging. It was on the TV. And the, the, the newscaster was asking a, a, a syndicated columnist, okay, what do we do to fix it? And the, news, the columnist had the presumption to give an answer. Now, there are things that can be done, and like I said, that gets into the rest of Exodus. But none of those things affect deliverance. None of those things get us out. None of those things get people out of this desperate situation where I am the problem. And when we are that desperate, when we're at the end of our rope, which is exactly where God has pushed the people, right to the edge, they're falling off the edge, 
Then, if we will listen, we will hear God saying, now. Now you will see it. You will see what I will do. Now you will understand. We'll hear Jesus saying to us in words that if you hear them in the context of Exodus suddenly make sense to us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Pharaoh is doing his utmost to overturn the purposes of God, to say no more multiplying of this people, no more spreading out of this people. Work is a curse, and I'm going to burden you with work. No rest, no worship. He might as well have Genesis 3 in his hand and be working through everything that God says is going to be part of the curse. He's just flipping the pages. I'm overturning this, I'm overturning this, and I'm overturning this. Humanly speaking, this encounter, this round one with Pharaoh didn't go so well. It was a loss, humanly speaking. Divinely speaking, it wasn't a loss. Like so many of the efforts that we make, things got worse. People were beaten, they were heartbroken, they were crushed, they were abused directly as a result of what Moses did. Now this goes back and forth between Moses and Aaron. Let me just say Moses. You do things, you try and help, that's what Moses is trying to do, and people, I mean, I don't don't know if they were killed. It seems inevitable that some people were killed in the midst of this. Exactly because of his efforts to help. So what God is doing here, if you want to put it in one word, amplification. He's turning it up. He's turning the sound louder. I want you to see how hard this is, how oppressive this is, because then you're going to hear a different melody enter into the story. And then you will see how significant my redemption actually is. The circumstance in our own lives will be different than this. They obviously won't be exactly what's going on here. Don't know what God will do in our lives. How circumstances will work out, how hard and hardening-hearted people will abuse us in this world, how this world will weigh on us, whether through individuals or through systems. But what we do know is that it will happen. This world is broken, and we must see it. And God must work in us so that we see it. Would that he only had to do it one time in our lives. Would that learning this lesson took one incident, and then I'd be fine, thanks, I got that lesson. But over and over again, he will take us to the edge to save our souls, to save our souls. He would take us to the edge if we would see Jesus and be prepared for a Savior that bore in his body exactly this, all of the oppressions, all of the beatings, all of the crushing that was going on to the people. The Savior takes it and dies 
and says, with my death, I'm lifting up this people. We will have to experience those in our lives if we will know of a love that will not let us go. There's no other way. Let's pray.